welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive. If you enjoy doing your own research and want to ensure that you leave no stone unturned, make sure you guys check out the MMA Fight Archive. There is a seven-day free trial available for you to check it out. Find out why close to 60 subscribers have joined on with the movement, uh, which consists of top cappers, top commentators, coaches, and fighters to ensure that they can do as much research uh, so they can do a solid breakdown, uh, predict a fight, or even just come up with a game plan to defeat their opponent. Check out all the direct links to past fights for these upcoming fights uh, for these fighters uh, competing on these upcoming cards, uh, LFA, UFC, Bellator, PFL, CFFC, Cage Warriors, uh, KSW, ACA. We got it all covered there on the MMA Fight Archive, uh, closing in on 2,400 fighter profiles now as well. So if you do, if you enjoy doing your own research and want to see these guys compete before they step into the cage for their upcoming events or their com- upcoming fights, Check out the MMA Fight Archive and you can get it all done there. All right, this week or uh, this episode, we're going over Bellator 300. Yes, it's the 300th show of the second tier MMA promotion in the world. And it's probably one of the few remaining shows considering the impending... uh, sale to PFL that is coming in the next couple months, it seems. But uh, they got a decent card here. Supposed to be four title fights. Unfortunately, Valentin Vassell got hurt earlier this week, so the fight got canceled with Ryan Bader. And then Lima Lay McFarlane missed weight. Uh, and the fight with Liz Carmouche is now a non-title fight three-rounder. So we are down to two title fights for this card. Still a banger of a card. We got Usman Nurmagomedov headlining against Brent Primus for the lightweight title as well as uh, another fight, a part of the lightweight Grand Prix. And then in the co-main event, we got Chris cyborg defending her title against cat zingano all right uh just a quick apology in regards to the lack of a visual appeal to this podcast as you guys are used to seeing uh recording this at 4 a.m before the fights kick off i believe that gives you guys a solid 14 hours to ingest this content uh before the fights actually kick off uh much better than the last time i did a bellator breakdown where we were just hours away from the card kicking off but uh, a ton going on this week not to mention bellator having 16 fights to get through i wanted to ensure that I did the best that I could in terms of the research so I can transfer or at least give you guys as much information as possible and give you the best prediction that I could possibly come up with as well. Uh, the, the extra segments for the UFC card will drop in the afternoon before the card actually starts. So if you're looking for the free parlay or the three best prop bets or my top three lock of the night candidates, top three dog of the night candidates, look for that on Saturday afternoon, uh, well before the UFC card kicks off so you guys can ingest that content as well. All right. We got 16 fights to get through for this Bellator card, so I'm going to try to do a quick pick style, get to the gist of the breakdown ASAP, and rifle through these fights. All right, first fight of the night, we got Josh Hockett going up against Spencer Smith. Hockett has a wrestling background, but also had a cup of tea, or a cup of coffee, I should say, with the San Francisco 49ers for the NFL. 
He never made it onto their actual roster, but had a couple training camps with them and some summer league stuff, but never really actually made it to the uh, the full team. So uh, he turned his attention to MMA, and now he has his first MMA fight this weekend, and it's legit his first fight. Didn't have any amateur experience, just wrestled in college as well, even has a, a grappling match against Bo Nickel on his record. Obviously, he ended up losing that, uh, but... You know, I have no idea what training camp he's with. Uh, he's not really speaking much about uh, where he's training or at least posting where he's been training. But you can expect a, a grapple-heavy approach from him to go out there and try to pick up his first win. Uh, he's going up against Spencer Smith, who's uh, coming off nearly a two-year-long layoff after suffering an injury in his last amateur fight, which he ended up losing, obviously, due to injury. He seems to have a decent understanding of the technical striking approach, uh, decent ability to ground and pound and posture up when he's able to get that position but I'm expecting Hawkett to come in here grapple him to the mat and then really pounce on Smith from that top position minus 1000 is not a number you want to pay on a guy that's never stepped foot in a professional MMA setting so I'm thinking just pass on this fight all in all but I still think that Josh Hawkett gets his hand raised as Bellator normally does a good job in terms of matching up their uh, new prospects in a way that grooms them and gets them ready to continue to take steps forward in their MMA career. So give me Hockett. Hockett inside the distance. Minus 1,000 though. No bueno. Next up, we got Ilara Joanni going up against Jenna Bishop. This is a great fight between uh, Joanni, who comes from that Pitbull training camp, and she fights like the Pitbulls as well, where she likes to crash the pocket with big strikes. But she's also able to utilize a takedown-heavy approach where she can just grind her opponents from that top position. Although she doesn't do a great job in terms of advancing position, ultimately just staying in that full guard, trying to grind out her opponents, and often getting st- stood up due to the fact that she's unable to really advance or do much uh, from that top position. Her opponent, Jenna Bishop, is a high-level BJJ black belt, and it would have been a great thing to see her actually start MMA a little bit earlier. She's very crafty and slick with her jiu-jitsu, and we continue to see it through her 5-0 professional MMA career that she's had thus far, especially in the Bellator debut she had earlier this year where she defeated Alina Kalyanidu uh, over 15 minutes by dominating her on the mat. I fully expect Bishop's grapple-heavy approach to pay off for her here, and even though Joanne may have a a little bit of a striking advantage i think it's going to be hard for joanny to get uh, bishop off of her especially when bishop is able to get her hands runner get a you know a body lock takedown or even some sort of trip but from that top position i expect jenna to be too strong and too slick and that could potentially pull off a submission victory for her so give me bishop here and i don't mind her number here around that minus 170 minus 180 range Next up, we got Romero Cotton going up against Grant Neal. Both guys like to grapple Cotton with a little bit more of a credentialed wrestling background, although he's pretty much only beaten up on tomato cans. And the first real test that he's given in Dalton Rasta, he got absolutely bullied in that fight and uh, finished in the third round. Uh, his striking is pretty much a one-two down the pipe, but not a lot of strikes, or sorry, not a lot of power or emphasis behind it. And it seems as though if he's unable to get his grappling going, he really starts to lose confidence. Uh, he gets demoralized and he starts to slow down tremendously. 
Grant Neal is a guy that doesn't really have a crazy wrestling background the way that Cotton does, but he still has a great MMA wrestling game where he's able to take it as a, his opponents to the ground and utilize his stocky strength that he's able to just keep these opponents in place and do some good damage where he's able to control them and then eventually win his fights by decision. He has a couple of submission victories on his record as well, but he also has a big punching power, although he only has one knockout on his record, which is now three and a half years ago. Last time out, he beat Carl Albrechtson by split decision in a very close back and forth fight, but that was a great learning experience for Neil to continue to tr- uh, progress through his career, especially with him being in his late 20s uh, at this point. I expect Neil to be the one with uh, the more success in this matchup. Even though Khan may have a technical wrestling advantage here, I fully expect Neil to be able to stuff his takedowns, grind on him, wear on him, and really start to take over this fight down the stretch. So I'm going to take Neil, and I don't mind his chalky line here, as I think that he can hurt Cotton a couple times, but really do his best work when he wears on him in the clinch, in the grappling, and then eventually on the ground where he can do some good work from on top. So give me the more experienced Grant Neil here to get his hand raised by decision. Next up, we got Mohamed Berkamov going up against Herman Torado. Berkamov is coming off a devastating knockout loss that he suffered at the hands of Lorenz Larkin, or I should say at the elbow of Lorenz Larkin, who put him completely out cold in a nasty elbow that he was able to uncork on in a clinch position. That was the fight where I thought that Berkamov was going to be able to get the fight to the ground and utilize a slick BJ to, J to either control the fight and win a decision or pull off a submission victory. But Berkamov still has a lot of solid uh, potential. He's only 29 years old and has a 15-2 and record. One thing that I really like about his game is how slick his jiu-jitsu is compared to regular Russian wrestlers that you normally see. Normally, you see Russian wrestlers go out there, grit, get the takedown, either get an arm triangle choke or do a good job of establishing a dominant position, posturing up and raining down big shots, whereas Berkamov is a little bit more slick and fluid in terms of transitioning from position to position and utilizing a variety of submissions to try to get his wins. His opponent, Herman Torado, is coming off of a five-year-long layoff and currently on a two-fight losing streak to the likes of Jake Shields and Magomed Magomed Karimov. But as you go through his record and watch his fights, you notice that the wins that he's been picking up have been over very low-level competition and not to mention a handful of guys that were winless, especially when he was facing them in in his 12th, 13th, 14th professional MMA fight. His last win came a split decision over Joao Zeferino, which is a solid win, but that's also Zeferino nearing the tail end of his career. I like Berkamov here to pretty much win this fight how he wants. I expect him to be able to get the takedown or at least get a position up against the cage where he can take the back of Toronto, start engaging in the grappling room, and then eventually pulling off a submission in this matchup. My only concern, obviously, with Berkamov is what his durability will look like after such a devastating knockout loss, but I think eight months of recovery time is more than enough for a fighter at 29 years old who has not usually uh, being knocked out and doesn't have a history of a bad chin to eventually recover and come back and give us one of his better performances. I think that this is a great stylistic matchup for him. And as long as he stays conscious, I expect him to go out there and get the finish within 10 minutes. Moving on to the light heavyweight division, we got Dovletsin Yagshimurdov going up against Masiej Rozanski. Yagshimurdov, Murray, 
Yangshi Murdoff, sorry, is coming off of two straight victories now, most recently going out there and putting on a perfect MMA performance against Julius Angliscus. Uh, that was a matchup where he utilized a lot of uh, kicks, movement from range, and then late takedowns in each round to really make it look good for the judges and get his hand raised by decision. He lost his first two fights, but can't really blame him considering the level of competition he was going up against, but he is coming off of wins over a former Bellator champion as well as a former title challenger. His opponent this weekend, the pole, Rosansky, uh, is coming off a loss to Brian Moore in a fight that he got outgrinded over 15 minutes. I believe that's at least 10 of the 15 minutes he got grinded on. Uh, Rosansky is norm- normally a striker, a guy that likes to go out there, put his punches together down the pipe, and try to hurt his opponents from distance. However, his takedown defense still leaves a lot to be desired, which is where opponents have been able to take advantage of him, taking him to the ground, and grind him out from that top position. Rosansky normally has trouble working back to his feet, and the only time he usually finds his way back to his feet is when the round ends, or if his opponent makes a big mistake and gives up a position. Which is why I think he's in for a long night this uh, evening as he takes on Yagshi Murdov, who really thrives in that ability to get his opponents to the ground and grind them out from that top position. Rosansky might have a little bit of a pop on his shot, but I don't think that he really will hurt Yagshi Murdov here, who should be able to do a good job of moving from range and timing his takedowns to get his opponents to the mat and grind him out from that top position. I really like Yagshi Murdov in this spot as I think it's a great stylistic matchup for him to go out there and give us a classic Yagshi Murdov decision victory. Next up, we move up a division and talk about some heavyweights as we got Davion Franklin going up against Slim Trebelsi. Davion Franklin is coming off a decision victory over Kasim Aras in a fight where he was able to stuff the takedowns and land enough good damage from the, uh, the striking room that he was able to get, able to get the judges' favor. However, it's surprising that a fighter of his physique and his fighting style has three wins on his record by decision. He is a guy that normally likes to go out there and get his opponents out of there quickly with the big striking approach that he normally brings to the table. This Jackson wing trained fighter has only suffered one defeat at the hands of former UFC fighter Marcelo Gom, who was able to outlast him and eventually finish him in the third round of their fight. Franklin normally has a poor gas tank, but has done a good enough job against the mediocre level of opponent he has faced to still get his hand raised. I think that he's going to be in some trouble here against a guy in Slim Trebelsi, who it seems like everybody has been hearing about for the last year or so, especially after he had originally signed with the UFC in October, but his former regional promotion, Aries FC, had forbidden him from joining that promotion. He was their heavyweight champion and has yet to compete ever since August of 2022 and seems to be in contractual disputes with his uh, with that promotion. Luckily for him, it seems like he's gotten it sorted out and he's going to be competing for Bellator this weekend. And he is a guy that comes in with a grapple-heavy approach more often than not. He's very agile for how big he is, but he does a great job in terms of changing levels and getting his opponents to the ground and battering them from that top position. He only has five MMA ma- uh, matches to his name, but he does have a win over Luis Enrique, who is a former UFC fighter who had a, a little bit of success at that level. 
But I think that Trabelsi, uh, Trabelsi is legit. I, I think that this is a guy that's going to be very tough to deal with, especially for a guy in Franklin. If Franklin's unable to get him out of there with that power early, I fully expect Trabelsi to really start to take over in deep waters. His wrestling should start uh, should start to come easier, and that should allow him to enjoy some top pressure and eventually posture up and get a ground and pound finish in the second or third round. Next up, let's talk about a pair of strikers here in Henry Corrales and Kai Kamaka III. This should be a fun matchup, like I said, between two strikers, two guys that love to exchange in the pocket and throwing combinations. We'll start off on the Corrales side, who's been in the uh, Bellator uh, promotion for eight years now. He surpassed that anniversary back in June and has put together a 9-6 record through his 15 fights with the promotion. He's never found himself in a title fight, but he is still considered one of the higher levels guys in the Bellator roster. He even has a win over Aaron Pico where he knocked him out in 67 seconds back in 2019. He's normally a very slick striker with a nasty calf kick as well, which seems to be a staple of the fight-ready team that he trains out of. His opponent this weekend is an extreme couture product in Kai Kamako, who was 1-1 since returning to Bellator back in 2021. He's pulled off two straight victories, or sorry, he started off 1-1 in his return to Bellator back in 2021, but since then has pulled off two straight victories over guys that seem to have been brought in mainly to get Kamaka to get his hand raised. Kamaka is normally a good combination striker, using his solid footwork to batter his opponents in the striking realm. When he is comfortable, he doesn't mind taking fights to the ground, but I'm not totally sold about his ability to control his opponents from that top position. I think for him to succeed, he needs to get into his groove with his striking, and that's usually how he's able to get his hand raised. I was kind of surprised to see the line as wide as it was in favor of Kamaka in this matchup, and I think that might be because people are familiar with Kamaka due to his UFC tenure. However, I feel like Corrales is just as good of a fighter, if not better. You know, I think the the difference maker here could be potentially the calf-kicking game of Corrales being able to slow down Kamaka so that his punches could come a little bit more fluidly afterwards. But at plus 165, I feel like in a fight that could be end up being a toss-up, Corrales is not a bad shot here as an underdog to go out there and really batter Kamaka from distance, again, starting with the calf-kicks and then opening up with the punches. Kamaka is not really known to be a crazy one-punch knockout threat, something that uh, Corrales last fell to uh, at the hands of Johnny Cupcake Campbell. But if his durability is able to stay intact and if he's able to stick with the striking game, he could come out on top here against the guy in Kai Kamaka that seems to have the public's eye. So give me Corrales here to pull off the upset by decision. Next up, we got Sergio Cosio going up against Jesse Roberts. Cosio is a guy that has over 34 fights to his name, mainly from the Latin regional scene. He's a guy that likes to go out there and fight clearly, considering how entertaining he is when he steps inside the cage. He really plays to the crowd with a lot of his movements, likes to throw a lot of big shots, but also doesn't mind mixing it up in the grappling realm if that's what's required. However, I think the level of competition he's been fighting will be a wake-up call for him as soon as he steps in the cage with Jesse Roberts, who may not be that experienced considering he's only 5-0, and but it clearly has some solid technical skills that Casio might have some issues with. Roberts is a BJJ brown belt, and although he's only faced abysmal competition throughout his pro career, you can see that he has the technical aspects that could make him successful if he gets a little bit more active. Trains out of Killcliffe FC and even has a win on the amateur scene over UFC fighter AJ Fletcher. 
but I still lean with the Roberts side here. Even with the lack of experience that he has compared to Sergio, I feel like he should be able to be the cleaner fighter, keep this fight a lot more disciplined than Casio is going to be looking to do, and I fully expect Roberts to put together a full overall game plan here to get his hand raised by decision. Not a whole lot of confidence here given the unknowns about Roberts against guys that are as experienced as Sergio, but I still think that a lot of Sergio's experience is against tomato cans, if I'm being honest, and taxi cab drivers, as a lot of people like to reference them. But I think Roberts get his hand, gets his hand raised, and I think he gets it done by decision. Next up, we got Leah McCourt going up against Sarah McMahon. A battle of grapplers here as we got McCourt, who's coming off of a split decision loss to Katzengano. It was a very close fight, and you could make an argument that she deserved to win that fight as well, but Zingano still had the judge's eye considering the damage she was able to land and some of the control damage that she was able to um, to enjoy. Uh, McCourt is responsible for the only loss on Mano Firo's uh, professional record, but we have to cut her some slack considering that was Firo's first professional MMA fight. McCord is usually strong in the grappling realm, and she will be out-wrestled here by the stronger Sarah McMahon, but it, it, should this fight get into deep waters, things could get a little bit interesting knowing that McCann or McMahon normally falls off in terms of her effectiveness and efficiency late in fights, especially considering her sketchy gas tank. McCord reminds me of somebody that could potentially give McMahon some problems in terms of McMahon trying to establish the top position and ride out some positions without worrying too much about uh, facing resistance. But like I said, McCord could give her those issues. So I'm still going to be going with McMahon here as I believe that she should be able to establish these positions at least for the first two rounds and she should be able to stay safe enough in the third round to still get her hand raised by decision. Not a whole lot of confidence, especially at the minus 160 line, but I still think McMahon gets the job done here. Next up, we got Bobby Sobronio III going up against Alberto Garcia. Now, these guys were originally scheduled to fight each other earlier this year, but the fight fell through, I believe, due to Sobronio suffering an injury. But Bellator still decided to put these guys together as they believe that it could potentially still be an entertaining matchup. Seronio is a fighter that is 7-0 through his pro and amateur career, currently 3-0 as a professional. This guy brings a very strong wrestling game to the cage, and his striking is normally a hybrid between karate and boxing. He likes to bounce around at distance in the karate stance, but when his opponents are able to get closer to him, he switches up to a boxing stance, which allows him to throw his hands and eventually change levels for that inevitable takedown, which he normally gets on his opponents, where he's able to control them from that top position and grind them out. On the flip side for Garcia, this is a guy with only four fights across his pro and amateur career, the first of which came back in 2014. So it doesn't really seem like he's been that active, but he's a guy that prefers to grapple with a lot of his striking, striking mainly being from flashy and powerful strikes rather than anything technical. He will definitely be caught by better strikers, especially with the openings that he leaves for a lot of opponents to counter him. But on the ground, he does a decent job in terms of his relentless takedown approach and some of the submissions that he tries to sell out for. But it's clear that he's going to come up short against better technical grapplers and better technical strikers. And that's unfortunately what he is facing this weekend in uh, Seronio. I'm going to lean with Seronio to go out there, grind this fight to the mat, and I think that will eventually open up a submission opportunity for him that he should be able to uh, nab onto. And if it's not that, I fully expect him to be able to knock out Garcia on the feet as well. Seronio, 
inside the distance pretty much however he wants. Next up, we got Bryce Meredith coming in as one of the biggest favorites on the card at minus 1,800 as he goes up against Miguel Pembert. Now, Meredith is 4-0 when trading out of the MMA lab. He's an, a standout collegiate wrestler who has done a great job in terms of molding himself into a full mixed martial artist. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with his coaching staff and training partners at the MMA lab. But this guy is so good with closing a distance, getting his fights to the ground, and then just staying patient enough, waiting for the transitions that need to happen so he can get to a dominant position and get the finish that he requires. But even fights that have gone into the third round for him, he looks to have a very good gas tank and should be able to take fights into deep waters if that's what's required. His opponent, Pimbrent, is, uh recently snapped his two-fight losing streak and he actually had losses to two guys that we just spoke about, Alberto Garcia and Bobby Serrano. Both guys were able to take him to the ground and grind him out. Pembert, I believe, is a BJJ purple belt, but he relies on that a little bit too much, which could end up being a double-edged sword. Either he's able to get that submission off of his back, or he just keeps fighting off of his back, but the judges end up favoring the guy who's on top of him, landing the smaller shots, and just doing their best to control Pembert, who's trying to get some offense off of his back. But Pembert, like I said, he's going to be facing a very tough wrestler here, and Meredith, whose BJJ game is improving at an exponential rate, and I believe that's going to be too much for Pembert to deal with. I fully expect Meredith to eventually get that dominant position required, and I fully expect him to get him out of there. Minus 1,800 is, you know, pretty much a layup, uh, and that's exactly what I am I believe is going uh, uh, to happen in this matchup. Pimbert might be able to threaten with a couple of submission attempts off of his back, but for the most part, I think Meredith is going to be too strong for him, allowing himself to get that dominant position, like I said, and find that finish, whether it's TKO or by that arm triangle choke that he loves to implement. Next up, we got Dmitry Hertzenko going up against Justin Montalvo. Last time around, I was able to cash on an underdog price on Hertzenko, who at the time was a relatively unknown prospect. He went up against Katizi, who has made his rounds in the Bellator cage, and a lot of people were leaning on him due to the experience that he already had. But Hertzenko, from the little tape I was able to gather on him before his Bellator debut, showcased that he had a solid striking skill set and also could take fights to the ground, and he could do a good job in terms of controlling his opponents on the mat. But in his Bellator debut against Katizi, it was his striking that allowed him to get his hand raised that night. It was a very close back and forth fight, but the judges ended up scoring his damage a little bit more in the striking realm, allowing him to get that victory. On the flip side, for Kid Marvelous, Justin Montavio, he dropped his first professional loss last time around against a very high prospect, a highly touted prospect in RJ Kogan. So there's nothing to, uh, you know... Uh, to, to hold his head about in terms of that. Uh, Montavo is normally a very slick striker. This guy loves throwing to the body, getting his opponents to drop the guard so that he can go back up top and hit them to the head. But he's hurt numerous opponents to the body and put them away with his body work as well. I think he's one of the more entertaining strikers to watch, especially when he gets into his full state, throwing in two, three, four, five punch combinations and really giving his opponents uh, a lot to think about. And I'm kind of leading him here as the underdog at plus 135. I think Hertzenko is a bright prospect, but I think he's going to find himself getting overwhelmed by the forward pressure and volume that Montavio will be putting on him. 
I expect Hertzenko to rely on his grappling to avoid the striking of Montavio, but I think Montavio can do a good enough job in terms of keeping this fight upright and then utilizing his striking to eventually find that body shot KO here over Dmitry Hertzenko. So give me Montavio as the underdog, and I think he gets the knockout probably in the second or third round. Next up, we got the Bellator debut of Lorani Santos as she takes on another Bellator debutante, Jackie Cataline. Starting off on the Santos side, she is 6-1, and one, although not the most impressive tape that I've been able to find on her. She does have a win over current UFC fighter Tenara Lisboa, who seems to be a solid prospect in her own right. At her best, from what I've seen from Santos, she's able to take her opponents to the ground and do good work from on top. She is able to establish a pretty strong top position uh, against most of her opponents where she's been able to just pin them up against the cage or just pin them on the mat and land some big shots that the uh, referee is, is not forced to stand them up due to any inactivity. Her gas tank seems a tad bit sketchy, uh, but I still need to see more from her, especially against legitimate competition, for me to fully get a grasp on her. On the flip side, for Jackie Catalan, who comes in with a 3-3 record, she's riding a two-fight losing streak to Evelyn Martins and Taylor Gordado, uh, Gordado, who are both able to take advantage of the poor gas tank on Catalan. Cataline brings in a wrestling background and normally she's able to get her opponents to the ground and get them out quickly but when she faces resistance especially against opponents that are either able to stop her takedowns or immediately work back to her feet you see Cataline immediately get demoralized she starts to slow down and that's where she ends up being a sitting duck allowing her opponents to get her out of there now I you know I, I I don't I wouldn't want to fade Cataline with a minus two hundred unknown like Lorani Santos, but it's so hard to get behind somebody that has as poor of a gas tank and has that quit in them uh, like Jackie Cataline does. So I'm going to pick Santos to get this win probably in the second or third round, more than likely by a submission. But just minus two hundred is too much for somebody who hasn't fought you know on a on a bigger stage like this. So give me Santos and Santos by submission. And that brings us to the main card, which again was supposed to be four title fights, but now it is two title fights. And then obviously this third fight here is now a non-title fight, uh, three-rounder between Liz Carmouche and Alima Lay McFarlane. Now the intriguing aspect of this fight is these two have been training partners for an extended period of time, and they weren't really reluctant to fight each other other than the fact that if it were to have been for a title. Now obviously circumstances surrounding the fact that McFarlane missed weight no longer makes this for the title, but they still want to go out there and throw down and put on a show for the fans. I believe that this will largely come down to the uh, fact of who is going to be able to implement their grapple-heavy approach more, and I think it's actually going to be Liz Carmouche. I think of the two, both these fighters um, have grapple-heavy approaches in their arsenal, but I think that it's going to be Carmouche that has uh, the better wrestling game, and she should be able to dictate where this fight takes place. I also think that she's the better boxer and slightly better striker. And I think that the only advantage that McFarlane normally has is going to be her uh, BJJ game that she's able to implement. However, I think she's going to struggle to do that here against Carmouche, especially a fighter that she's been training with for a long time. And I expect Carmouche to be ready and should be able to have the answers for whatever moves that Ali Malade likes to pull off here. So I'm going to lean with Carmouche to go out there, grind this fight out over 15 minutes, 
and maybe face a little bit of adversity at times. But for the most part, I fully expect Carmouche to be the one in control and that should get her the decision victory. Next up, featherweight title fight here between Chris Cyborg and Kat Zingano. You got minus 800 on Kat Zingano, or sorry, on Chris Cyborg, and it makes complete sense here. Now, Kat Zingano was offered this matchup plenty of times when she originally came to the Bellator roster, but she continuously turned it down, probably believing that she wasn't ready for it, and now she kind of seems to be uh, forced into this matchup, which is just not that great of a look. I fully expect Chris Cyborg to have her way with her here, stopping the takedowns and just wearing on Zingano, and then eventually getting her out of there in the second or third round. I think Cyborg is a far superior striker here and I think once Singano starts to tire out especially from her failed takedown attempts she gets way too wild she throws a lot of off-balance striking uh, which will leave plenty of openings for Cyborg to pounce on her and I think that Cyborg should be able to finish her like I said within 10 to 15 minutes uh, I'd, just, I'd be surprised if this fight hits the scorecards. It would really take Cyborg, uh, you know, just cruising in this fight for her to not get the finish here. Zingano is a sitting duck, like I said, uh, likely in the second or third rounds, especially with the failed takedown attempts, especially with how sketchy her gas tank look. Uh, looks and especially with how sketchy her striking defense looks so i think that cyborg knocks her out i think you can get anywhere between minus 150 and minus 250 rather than paying the minus 800 on cyborg's money line if you were just to target the knockout prop that's the one that i like here and that's where i think ends up coming through and that brings us to our main event which is a lightweight title fight but also a fight a part of the lightweight grand prix we got Usman Nurmagomedov going up against Brent Primus, and Nurmagomedov is looking to extend his eight or seventeen fight winning streak to eighteen and continue his flawless career. Now, unlike his cousins like Usman, or sorry, uh, um, Khabib, and uh, even his brother Umer, uh, he actually started off as a striker and then got into the wrestling game. So you see him more comfortable in the striking realm, it seems, but he's just as good in the wrestling uh, as his, uh, you know, Dagestani counterparts. He does such a great job in terms of mis mixing his wrestling behind his striking, and that allows him to pretty much dictate the pace and where most of his fights take place. Whether he wants to go out there and outstrike his opponents for 25 minutes or look to take them to the ground and dominate from the, on top, he is probably one of the most complete fighters we've ever seen in mixed martial arts. It makes complete sense why he's minus 2,000 here. Now, I get it. Premise is a veteran. He has a couple big wins. He's also coming off an upset victory over Mansoor Barnoui from earlier this year. But it's starting to look like Barnoui is probably not as good as we originally expected. Premise is a BJJ black belt, so he might be able to hold his own on the mat if he does get taken down here. And he also has some decent knockout power in his punches. But... I still believe that Nurmagomedov should be able to control where this fight takes place. And if it wasn't for the um, the experience that Premis already has, I'd probably be even more confident on the Nurmagomedov side. But he's minus 2,000 here, so we're going to try to figure out how to bring that number down. It's either he wins by decision or he wins inside the distance. I'm going to lean with inside the distance. I think that his striking is going to be too good for Premise here. And even he can utilize his grappling to wear on Premise and then reap the fruits of his labor later on in this matchup with the striking advantages that he's going to have. So give me Nurmagomedov to go out there and finish Premise. I'm going to call it within four rounds. So even the one, over one and a half is not a bad line. I believe it's roughly around that minus 130, minus 140 line. 
I think it's going to take a little while for this matchup to get going. But once it gets going, Nurmagomedov will get into his groove and he'll eventually find that way to get Brent Primus out of there. And there you guys go. Breakdowns for all 16 fights for this Bellator card. It has been a long week, but I'm glad to finally put the bow on it here. Appreciate all the love as always. Um, again, apologies for the lack of uh, visually stunning graphics that you guys are used to seeing in these uh, podcasts. But I just want to get this one out for you guys. Um, again, Sunday or Monday, I should be dropping the last episode of the Contender Series. And then we'll also get into the next UFC card. Uh, yeah. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Drop a like and subscribe if you haven't already. And good luck on all your action this weekend, folks. I will see you next week. Peace. Last thing. Bye.